Hello and welcome to The Journey, your radio show, hosted by Neville D'Angelo, author of A Soundbite Life and Flight of the Fused Monkeys, a PRG Emerging Technologies Forum keynote speaker and founder of Rio Sports. I am Joseph Ellison. Enjoy! Hello, I am Neville. There is meaningful consensus that uncontrollable healthcare costs is a major threat to the health and economic welfare of many societies, and in particular the U.S., that despite many debates and piecemeal remedies, the current trajectory of our systems is unsustainable, and that many of the strategies for addressing the complex underlying issues are failing us miserably. There is, however, a solution. Today, I am pleased to have as our guest the talented Mr. Gregory Curvier to share work he has done in partnership with the World Economic Forum to address this exact issue. And I've asked him to offer us individually as well as corporately concrete steps we can take to solve this debilitating problem. Gregory, thanks for availing some of your valuable time, experience, and expertise to us. Welcome. First, though, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for inviting me, Neville. Um, I come from Belgium. I was born in the UK, actually, um, and now I'm in the US. So I have a very diverse background. Um, I studied also in Belgium, in the US, and in Argentina. And um, I moved to the US because of my girlfriend. Um, and I also uh, was able to continue with my management consulting job at the Boston Consulting Group. Um, one of my key uh, life uh, philosophy um, principles is that uh, if you make easy choices, you'll have a tough life. <laughs> yes. If you make tough choices, you'll have an easy life. Mm -hmm. I like that. So, you know, early on as a student, I, um, I had management consulting companies contact me. And, you know, they really do their best to recruit you. And strangely so, I did not pick the one who threw most money at me. They uh, offered me a helicopter ride, and it was really nice. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to keep my feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. So I picked BCG, the Boston Consulting Group, because I had the best fit with them. So I've worked there for five years now, and I worked my way up from associate to consultant, and, and now I'm a project leader. Hmm. So basically, it now means that I have a, a team to manage, but not just a team. It also means that um, all the strategic projects that we have, I'm the one on the ground day to day uh, leading that project, hmm. um, helping clients, partnering with clients to achieve their most important uh, strategic objectives. Hmm. Um, so we do a bunch of things, and I worked across uh, more than 10 different transformations. And today, um, I would like to speak specifically about some of the work I did in healthcare. Tell me about it, yes. So um, I did multiple things uh, at BCG, but mm -hmm. one of the most interesting projects was in partnership with the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was on value-based healthcare. So what is value-based healthcare, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm sure that's the first question yeah, that absolutely. comes to mind. Yes. So it's about getting 
the same or better treatment at a lower cost, mm-hmm. right? So that may sound difficult, but why is it a problem today? Why is healthcare a problem today in the U.S.? Well, we can look at some, uh, some statistics here. So first of all, in the U.S., you have around 30% of the money on healthcare that is wasted. And the reason why it's wasted is mostly because of misaligned incentives. Mm. Misalignment between doctors and patients, misalignments between the government and uh, insurance companies, and uh, a bunch of other misalignments that we will not go into today uh, because of the complexity around it. So one other interesting statistic is the amount of money that is spent on health versus the total GDP. So in the US, we are roughly around 20% of the GDP that is spent on healthcare. Mm-hmm. In other uh, Western countries like the Netherlands, France, or Sweden, we are more around uh, 11 to 12%. So you see that's already a big gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then we have one of our top performing countries, uh, Singapore, in terms of the developed countries. They have great health outcomes and they only spend around 5% of their GDP on mm-hmm. healthcare. So it's three to four times lower than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very, very significant, right? And you're saying for the same quality care. For the, for the same, same quality, quality or better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you specific examples. Mm-hmm. We're going to case studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not looking at um, underdeveloped countries, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not looking at developing countries. I'm really trying to compare the developed mm-hmm. countries here. Mm-hmm. And we can go into specific segments of healthcare mm-hmm. where we know that they have better outcomes mm-hmm. at lower costs. Gotcha. So what do I mean with an outcome? What I mean by that is a health outcome. So typically hospitals like to measure process outcomes and they look at how many days a patient stays in the hospital or how quickly um, he has to be readmitted. Um, But if you really want to look at true health outcomes, you need to listen to the patient and really understand his needs. Mm. So one of the most obvious ones that hospitals measure as well is death rates, Mm. right? And if you look at um, the best performing hospitals in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and you compare them versus the worst performing hospitals in the U.S., have a guess at how big the difference is in the likelihood of death in terms of percentage-wise. And you're talking about right U.S. to U.S. U.S. to U.S., best versus worst. What's the difference in performance in terms of likelihood of death? Tell me. It's more than 300% difference. Wow. (laughs) Not anywhere near where I would have guessed. (laughs) It's pretty impressive. It's actually, it's shocking, right? Yes. Um, Now, you know, typical death rates of a typical surgery or procedure is not that high. Mm -hmm. But still, if I could tell you, if I would tell you, hey, if you go to hospital A, your chances of dying are three times higher than if you go to hospital B, (laughs) you might think twice. If you had that data available at your fingertips. (laughs) Right, right. Right. So now let's take a less um, tough line and let's just look at complications right you go you go for surgery and you have a complication again we're we're comparing the best performing hospitals versus the worst performing hospitals in the u.s Mm -hmm. so how many times worse do you think a complication can be best versus worst or how many times more often do you have a complication best versus worst what's the typical figure there with the kind of percentage that you give me give me it sounds like three times worse three times worse yeah Well, the probability that you end up with a complication is 33 times higher when you compare best-performing versus worst-performing hospitals. Mm -hmm. 
So basically, in some of the worst performing hospitals, if you step into that hospital for a specific set of procedures, mm. I can guarantee you there's a very high likelihood that you step out there with a complication. Mm. At least mm. 33 times higher than in some of the best performing ones mm. in the US. That's and this shocking, is after right? careful studies. This recent studies or uh, these studies date back from 2014 so they are around four, uh, four years old mm. and and yes they were looked at across a population of hospitals mm. and these are you know averages across uh, multiple different um, uh, procedures etc but we only look at some of the more complex procedures mm. uh, so we don't take a full uh, i would say full population of procedures, full scope and extent of issues, mm. but on a wide variety of issues that we studied, mm-hmm. um, and I'll go more into that, that, that was the figure. Mm. Shocking. So, this is why it's so important, and this is why it's a problem today. So let's look at uh, a potential way out. What can we do about it? Mm-hmm. Right? What are some of the solutions available? Mm-hmm. We'll start with a high-level framework and then we'll go into a couple of case studies and we'll end with a conclusion of what it means for each of you out there. And I will already reveal uh, part of the secret. Should I do that, Neville, or should I wait? I would wait. Okay, I will wait. But more to come on how you can take uh, control of your life and how you can decide on the best hospital to go to. We definitely want to know that. Let's give us the information. Yes. So let's start with the framework mm-hmm. that um, we developed together with the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. to help uh, you know, improve the, the healthcare system as a whole, right? Let's first start there for, at the system level. So it all starts with the patient. Um, historically, we were not looking at the patient um, and, uh, or not enough. We were more looking at from a hospital perspective, etc. But you need to look at the individual patient and really understand the patient. So... Uh, the first thing is understand your, your patient and even broader than that, your population segments. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that we will focus on is prevention, right? And so you need to think about population of people and not necessarily patients, not necessarily people who are already sick today, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. more how can you take an overall end-to-end approach, including prevention. So that's the first key lever that was used a lot uh, that we will call population segments. The second one is the specific, uh, the segment-specific interventions. So how do you uh, change the way of working for a child versus an elderly person? Uh, how do you change the way of working for somebody who is very sociable, um, potentially you know, taking extravagant risks versus somebody that walks into your doctor's office and that sounds risk-averse mm-hmm. and that is communicating in a very different way? Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the second key lever that we looked at and where we suggested a bunch of uh, levers to improve. Now, you can overlay that with a bunch of enablers. Uh, well, today, you know, we live in a very digital world and, and digital is really becoming a buzzword. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually, uh, through informatics, capture quite a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Um, think about what Amazon is trying to do right now. Uh, they're trying to launch their uh, a healthcare unit Mm -hmm. and one of their key competitive advantages will be the way that they handle data Mm -hmm. right so yes there are some privacy concerns and that brings us to managing policy makers in in the right way Mm -hmm. and making sure that we don't breach any uh, data privacy concerns Uh, but clearly you know informatics and policy uh, levers go hand in hand 
to do what's right for the patient, mm -hmm. right? And to try to avoid just the, the money-making angle, but really to do what's right for the patient. And ultimately, the purpose of value-based healthcare is to avoid waste. So if you use data in a way to avoid waste mm -hmm. and improve health, health outcomes at mm -hmm. the same time, then in my perspective, it's very legitimate uh, to use the data if the, the patient or the population uh, is agreeing with this. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that, that we use a lot is uh, another enabler is benchmarking, and then you have research and tools also at your disposal. So if you think about the way that they do clinical trials, um, there are some ways that you can accelerate certain procedures and you can get to much faster results. Again, there's a, a link with policymakers there. Some things are uh, not yet accepted by law. And so you need to think through how you can influence the policymakers to get to a, a better system, uh, I would say, for example, in the US, mm. uh, but also worldwide. Two other dimensions that I want to mention that are really critical when you think about value-based healthcare. So one is the delivery organization. So think about um, a bunch of hospitals that work in isolation mm -hmm. versus a bunch of hospitals that work together. Think about the structure of certain hospitals. Do they really take the patient as um, the holy grail? So do they optimize for when the patient walks in, um, looking at the different procedures and steps that the patient has to take to make the patient experience as best as possible? Do you really you know, coordinate the physicians, primary care and then secondary care, etc., in a way that is optimal for the patient or not? Um, that is everything around delivery organization. And how do you then uh, measure results, capture results, and train your organization to do better? Mm -hmm. The last one um, that is actually really, really fascinating is everything around payments. So you have a bunch of different ways that people can pay for care, and of course, you also have insurance. Mm -hmm. So depending on how the payment is structured, you can have the wrong incentives in place. It sounds strange and, and terrible, but actually this is one of the biggest levers that we can pull today. It's making sure um, that the, the payments are done in the right way. And let me give you a concrete example on this one. Mm -hmm. So in uh, Scandinavian countries, um, one of the things that they do really well now is knee replacement. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty standard procedure. And imagine two different ways of paying. The first way of paying is you pay for every procedure that you have. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have a surgery, it fails. You have to pay again. You go on recovery, you have another problem, you have to pay again. Mm -hmm. This is payment model one, which I will call the historical payment model. In these countries, they now shifted to a new payment model which basically you pay an all-in fee when you start, and it's basically a payment that if it fails, you will not have to pay again. The hospital will then take care of additional uh, costs if uh, there are complications, etc., along the way. Mm -hmm. So you shift the burden here. So the hospital has a big incentive to minimize their costs given a certain outcome that you aligned on. Mm -hmm. The outcome is very clear. If you were doing sports or something something like that, the outcome is that you are again able to do sports within a certain amount of time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they set a specific set of outcomes mm -hmm. and they, they track progress towards that outcome. Mm -hmm. And you pay a fixed fee and if the hospital does better, they make more money. Mm -hmm. If the hospital does not deliver on their promises, the hospital loses money. Mm -hmm.
Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. I can see that the more efficient you make the system, it's beneficial for all. The better the outcomes, that's good for the patient. Now, let's look at it from the hospital's or the doctor's perspective. I'm sure that they'd want to be assured that whatever procedures they perform, whatever hospital it is performed in, they would not want to be remunerated any less moving from patient to patient or hospital to hospital or procedure to procedure. Of course, I'm making that assumption for them or on their behalf. Uh, how are they helped in these scenarios? Or are they just a fixed entity and the changes are only for e towards efficiency? So you're taking the doctor's perspective yes, and you're asking, to... you know, uh, how is this influencing their pay? Right, right. right. Uh, because, you know, they also have a family right, to feed right, right. And, and, you know, right. they want a steady pay, yes. right? Mm. So the risk is taken at the hospital level, right? Mm. So for this specific knee procedure, the risk is taken at the hospital level. Mm. The doctor has, uh, you know, a, a fixed pay. Mm. I'm sure that some hospitals are uh, trying out, you know, a model where you have a portion fixed and a portion that is incentive based. Mm -hmm. And you also know that the hospital, a, a doctor can acquire experience and the, the better the, the doctor, the more money he will make. Mm -hmm. Right. So I wouldn't look at it uh, surgery by surgery. I would more take a, a longer time span and look at how if they do the best job that they can do they will then benefit, benefit from it because they will get a promotion within the hospital, etc. Okay. So it's not about, um, I think your question was about, are we then moving the risk right. to the doctors? Right. And who is ultimately going to pay for this? That's correct. And, and the answer here is, if you take out waste from a system, mm -hmm. then nobody has to pay for it. Everybody benefits. Mm -hmm. It's a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. But you have to put uh, specific things in place to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the system level, you have to improve the overall performance of mm. your system. So not just the hospital, but you have to talk to the insurance companies and change the payment model. Mm. Um, you have to talk to uh, the doctors and understand their perspective. They mm. don't want everybody to know that they are a bad doctor, right? <laughs> right. Imagine I'm new mm. and I'm a doctor. I don't want everybody to know I'm new. And then they will look at my statistics, right? Mm. So you want to create an environment where you first have some inter internal performance management processes mm -hmm. where the hospital has, for example, two, three years to improve mm. on specific diseases and treatments that they do. Mm. Well, ultimately, we give the opportunity to the hospitals to specialize in a specific domain so they will become more efficient, more effective. Um, they will have better outcomes as well. Mm. And so that will be, become a marketing tool uh, to attract uh, people for this specific disease that they have or, or whatever they might want to uh, look at. And so if you have, you know, a few doctors really specializing in, a, in specific areas, it will help you overall to realize economies of scale and all of that. So a lot of waste can be avoided. Again, you have to make sure that you also talk to the policymakers, you adapt your payment systems. Um, it's a, a big transformation mm -hmm. to go through as a hospital. This takes years and requires change management. It's a 
terminology that consultants love to use, change management. <laughs> so what does it mean, change management? Right? It's the buying of your doctors, the buying of your management. It's the buying of your nurses. It's the buying of everybody along, uh, you know. You mean the buy-in? The buy-in, buy-in. Right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Having buy-in. Change management is having mm-hmm. buy-in, is engaging all the employees in your hospital, everybody mm-hmm. uh, to be part of this transformation. Mm-hmm. So you have to explain value-based healthcare in simple words. It's not about saving money. It's not. It's about having better outcomes mm-hmm. and now, along the way saving costs as where possible. Now, what, what entity... You, you have different entities here operating. You have the doctors, you have the hospitals, you have the patients, you have the insurance company, you have the government. Who should be pulling all this together? Because each will be right now probably fighting for their own interest and the, with that inefficiency rises. So where, where does this coordination come from or ought to come from? Yes. So we spoke about misaligned incentives and we mm-hmm. spoke about risk. Mm-hmm. So you, the question you're asking is about how can we build bridges across institutions mm-hmm. and how can we align incentives? Yes. Right? yes. And at the same time, minimize risk. Mm-hmm. Well, think about a world where you don't know how much it costs to buy a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. Think about a world where you don't know how much it costs to buy a, a Coke. Mm. you don't have the information. Anybody can tell you a loaf of bread today is $20. Mm. You don't know. So what you need is transparency Mm. so that everybody has the same information at hand. Mm -hmm. A loaf of bread is definitely not $10. So if anybody is trying to sell you a loaf of bread for $10, Mm -hmm. they either are offering a very specialized service or bread in this case, mm-hmm. or they are screwing you. Sorry for my French. No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important as a first step mm-hmm. to have some pioneers out there, to have hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. to really uh, set up the right health outcomes, mm-hmm. make them global standards. And actually, there's an organization doing that today. There's mm-hmm. a really great news along the way. So we have ITROM. It's an organization who's standardizing health outcomes. You said ICHOM? ICHOM. Yes, ICHOM. We can add a link uh, on the podcast and and people can look at it. So they Mm. have been standardizing a multitude of diseases today. Um, Amongst others, prostate cancer, and and we'll get back to that. Mm. Uh, It's a very interesting case study. And so if you're able to agree on what are the right standard health outcomes that we're looking for, Mm -hmm. and then having everybody optimize to get a better outcome defined you know based on the what you defined here mm-hmm. then ultimately people will specialize and you will be able to save costs down the world mm-hmm. and down, down the world think about somebody who day in day out does exactly the same and has seen like 10,000 patients and really knows his job really well because he worked in plenty of different uh, contexts and backgrounds versus mm-hmm. somebody that just started you, you might want to make sure that the experienced guy who has the best statistics, etc., does more of the difficult uh, surgeries, etc. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, you will have less complications, less death rates, you know, back to our complications and death rates variation at the beginning of this talk. Mm-hmm. So incentive alignment is, is really key there. And yes, the hospitals should lead the way. Um, but together with global institutions like ICHOM, because you need to set the right standards and then everybody can benchmark versus the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, 
the rules to run uh, you know the fastest mile in the world what are the rules well you can have maximum this kind of wind um, you can't have any uh, motorized vehicles when you run a mile uh, to try to beat a world record right mm -hmm. so you have to, to, to set a set of rules and principles of what the, what does good look like and then you have to let you know the best hospitals in the world compete against each other and create peer pressure. You have to then show and, and publish these, uh, these lists of best performing hospitals mm -hmm. and let the ones that are worst performing, you know, get to the top, uh, you know, across the, world, the, the years. So give hospitals the opportunity to improve, mm -hmm. make sure that they can do some internal benchmarking, share the data and the best practices with them and let them decide where to specialize. Mm -hmm. And then after that, when the hospitals have their own specialization, uh, we will have a better system. Now, that's only step one. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go into a few case studies, if you don't mind. Yes, I'd love, I'd love that. Mm -hmm. uh, with some concrete things that are happening across the world that were shocking to me when I got to know them. Mm -hmm. So the first case study that I would like to, uh, to share is a case study from the Martini Clinic. So the Martini Clinic is a German clinic uh, specializing in prostate cancer. And so we were talking about health outcomes, patient-centric health outcomes. That's how we call it. Mm -hmm. So let's think about us being old men out there. Okay, Neville. I'm not old yet. No, <laughs> right? <laughs> Are you saying I'm old? <laughs> um, so imagine us in um, 20 plus years, right, Neville? Okay. If not more. And um, imagine we, we would have prostate cancer. First of all, that would be terrible, right? But mm -hmm. let's think about it seriously and, and the consequences. Mm -hmm. So I'll take an example myself. So what would I not be able to do? Well, what about my sex life, Neville, mm -hmm. when you have prostate cancer? Tell me about it. Can you still have an erection? Tell me about it. <laughs> can, you, can you sleep at night without having to go to the restroom? Mm -hmm. Incontinence, right? Mm -hmm. And can you then have some irritations and some other things um, that are really annoying to you. Well, these are the standard health outcomes that people look at when we talk about prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Again, that has been defined by ICHOM, so you know it's very standardized, but Martini was really a, the Martini Clinic was really a pioneer in defining these together with, the, with ICHOM. Mm -hmm. So if you look at you know, a basic health outcome like death rate, and you compare the Martini statistics versus the German average, they are similar. You have uh, a 4% chance roughly of dying after an operation at the Martini clinic because of prostate cancer, and a 5% chance of dying in other average German hospitals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at first the difference look, looks minor, but 25% difference. It's still big. Yes. Now, this is for, you know, a, a metric like dying. Now, 5% all in all is pretty small, right? 95% of, of survival. So you really want to look at erectile dysfunction in, in incontinence and other irritations as primary health outcomes, right? Because if the difference is 5% versus 4% death, yes, that's important and you don't want to die. Mm -hmm. But assuming that you have to go through surgery... After that, you still want to have a good life. So if I'm telling you that erectile dysfunction, the health outcomes at the Martini Clinic are really, really different than any other uh, German hospital 
Would you believe me? And, and the second question would be, have a guess. If I'm telling you that the German average after surgery for prostate cancer is that 75% of the patients still have erectile dysfunction after an operation, Ooh. what is the statistic at the Martini Clinic? Tell me. Half. Actually, less than half. It's 35%. Mm. It goes from 75 to 35 so if you go to any typical average, not even worst performer, average German hospital, you have surgery. After that, 75% of the time, you can't have decent sex anymore with your wife. At the Martini Clinic, it's less than half. It's 35%. Let's look at incontinence. Peeing in bed or peeing in general without you wanting to pee, right? So in a typical... German hospital, and look, I'm losing my statistics here. Let me make sure I, I, I say the truth. So here, so these statistics date back from 2016. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of incontinence, a typical German average hospital, after your operation, after your surgery, was 43%. Mm-hmm. Imagine that as a complication. Okay. <laughs> At the Martini Clinic, have a guess, Never have a guess. Well, you tell me. So Six point five percent. Wow! From forty three to six point five percent. So I was talking and boasting about oh, uh, hospitals have to specialize. Mm-hmm. Martini is specialized. Mm-hmm. Look at these statistics. Now I know that you uh, you guys have gathered these statistics, but these statistics are not generally available to the public. So that is the whole purpose of ICHOM. Mm-hmm. ITROM is trying to make them widespread, etc. Mm-hmm. The first step is to make sure that hospitals understand that these statistics will be published one day mm-hmm. because we don't want people to continue buying a loaf of bread at $10 if it's available at $2. But here's, here's what I don't understand or can't comprehend is, is probably a better word in this particular case. The other hospitals are probably very aware of the success rate at Martini. Uh, why aren't they all doing what they are doing? Is it because just because of specialization? Or you see what I'm saying? That's why, a great why question. Why isn't everyone just doing the same thing? So if you go back to the beginning of the podcast where we explained the framework, you know, there are a multitude of things going on here. Mm-hmm. So yes, part of the answer is specialization. But one of the main things that is going on here mm-hmm. is that because of Martini's drive to really focus on these outcomes... One of the really cool things is that they actually um, do less surgeries than other hospitals. They decide to do more of the active monitoring. Mm. And they decide to forego some of the money. Because you know what? This surgery is very expensive. And other hospitals can make a lot of money by pushing patients to have surgery. Mm. And after that, 75% of the people don't, yeah, well, are not able to have an, uh, an erection anymore. Mm. So... It's more expensive and less effective in other hospitals because of the payment schedule that they have there, mm-hmm. amongst others. So the Martini Clinic has asked for a fixed payment. Whatever they do, whether they want to then do the surgery or not, mm-hmm. that they still get a fixed amount of money and then they will take care and they will optimize the health outcomes for the patient. Mm-hmm. So if the patient has a really active lifestyle, mm-hmm. um, 
and active is not just in bed, but also, you know, <laughs> exercising, etc. Right, Neville, right. don't get wrong <laughs> ideas here. Um, then you want to make sure that people get that you really need to understand the segment of patients that you're treating, right? It goes back to population segmentation. So somebody with an active lifestyle that doesn't have major issues, major pain points uh, when going through prostate cancer, you shouldn't uh, have surgery. And so you have to go through the overall value chain and think about, is it potentially mental? Can you do something uh, on the mental side? Can you just take, uh, you know, a few pills um, can you do some specific physical exercises to help it? Can you change your food patterns? Yeah. We know that it's really, really bad to eat meat. Everybody should go vegan. Um, and by the way, right. I, I still eat meat, but um, I'm going to share something that uh, you will not know yet. It's right. pretty interesting. Mm. But I went for my annual checkup mm. two days ago, mm-hmm. and I had far too high blood pressure. Mm. And um, I'm also pretty stressed out when they draw blood um, because I, uh, I had a bad experience as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I fainted. I fainted two days ago, Neville, at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I have a really good doctor. And, and she basically said, you know, Gregory, you really have to think seriously whether you don't want to become a vegan. And it's a wake-up call. And it links back to what can you do about it to improve your own outcomes? Well, I know we're going to talk about that in a moment. Yes. But... Um, you you make me wonder why being vegan would have saved you in that particular situation. You don't have to answer it now, but that's the I'll question you know. that's going to my mind. Yeah, yeah but go ahead. Mm-hmm. And maybe being vegan specifically will not help, but doing a bunch of things in combination with being vegan will help. And we'll get back to that. So this is the Martini Clinic really focused on health outcomes, trying to optimize their payment schedule and negotiating with the policymakers so that there's a win-win situation for the patients and for themselves. And so they use these statistics as a marketing tool, of course, but these are true statistics based on standardized outcomes, based on what people truly care about mm-hmm. when they have prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. That was the Martini Clinic case study. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let us go to uh, another case study and let's go to Singapore. I mentioned Singapore before. It's pretty amazing what they did. So what's so special about Singapore? Singapore became independent in 1965. And since then they have had a very stable government. So in terms of the policymakers, they were always focused on doing everything perfect. They were all about planning. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for healthcare in Singapore specifically? They focused on prevention and individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. They also ensured the right peer pressure. You can also call it competition between, you know, the, the major uh, healthcare providers. And then when competition failed, they intervened effectively and efficiently when the market forces failed, right? So, again, it's very impressive to see that they only spent 5% of their GDP on healthcare. And for everything that is cardiovascular, mm-hmm. they have equal or better outcomes than the U.S. And the U.S., has anywhere between 15 and 20% uh, of their GDP spent on healthcare, depending on which year you look at. Mm. So it's three to four times lower money, less money, for better outcomes, specifically when you look at cardiovascular diseases. Mm. 
So the main, the main takeaway here is that it's all about planning and prevention and individual responsibility. Okay. At the patient level and at the hospital level. Mm -hmm. I was about to ask whether uh, it is a large percentage of their success due to individual responsibility, the lifestyle, or is it, or do you know that, which were... Uh... Yeah, so, so there are a lot of things at play here. Mm -hmm. uh, let us go through a, a couple. Um, so th the first thing that they did is that they had a long-term vision, right? From a government perspective, they wanted to make the right choices today mm -hmm. so that their population mm -hmm. could benefit down the road. And so they wanted to leapfrog, for example, on informatics, they have leapfrogged other countries because they were always focused on the end, on their vision of having everything run really smoothly. Mm -hmm. And then they invested in healthy living. So if you look at their city centers, mm -hmm. they are very walkable. They push people to walk. They advertise everywhere that you should be you know, eating healthy, uh, exercising more than 10K uh, steps a day. I don't know exactly whether they advertise 10K. That's the US recommendation. Maybe in Singapore, it's 15 or 20K that they advertise today. Um, one of the other things that they did in terms of how they spend their, mon their money is they think about what's urgent versus what's important. What's important. In the US, we spend a ton of money on what we call what is urgent. Mm -hmm. The government spends a ton of money on what's urgent. But we forget to build infrastructure that will help us down the world. Invest in what's important. And what they do is they basically strive to have self-funding for each generation. So they take people between age bracket 0 and 20 years old and then 20 and 40, etc. Mm -hmm. And they invest the money of that generation wisely. And so an issue that we have in the US is that young people are paying for old people right now mm -hmm. in the US. People who are working are paying taxes and the, the tax money, taxpayer money can go to older generations. It's a huge issue and it will create a big conflict most likely in the Western countries. Mm -hmm. In Singapore, they sold for that already. They are ahead of their time. So the next point is on ensuring that individuals truly feel responsible for their health by increasing the link between their funding and use of care. So think about retirement funds. Mm -hmm. um, think about how much you pay when you go to the doctor. So if it's a first annual checkup, if it's all about prevention, most of it is going to be free in Singapore. You don't have to pay for it or a very small copay. And then if you have to start increasing your doctor's visits and it's clearly something that is related to you not doing enough exercise, etc., because of the way that the system is financed, you'll end up paying a lot of money um, and you'll have to you know, think about changing your lifestyle and you'll get pushed into changing your lifestyle to make sure you become healthier before it becomes a major issue, mm -hmm. before we have to do surgery on you. Mm. So it's not that they are prescribing pills. They are prescribing you a specific lifestyle so that we don't need to intervene uh, in a costly way. Hmm. Then the other thing that they do is that they have external transparency. They publish on their site, on their website, the cost and the quality metrics across hospitals. So they tell you, if you have this issue, we recommend you strongly to go to this hospital hmm. because it's less expensive and it has better metrics, better outcomes. And so it enables the patients to make their own decisions. <coughs> Sorry. And then a last point 
given mm-hmm. that they segment their population so well, mm-hmm. given that they, they know how to self-fund by generation, they are now focusing also on the elderly, pop- elderly population. Mm-hmm. So they have some money left because all these people are healthy, but they are also living, or, you know, living longer. So you have to think about specific things you can do to help all the people uh, strive and not just survive, but strive mm-hmm. uh, and be happy, thrive mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, you know, at a high level, a summary of what is happening in, in Singapore. Um, it's all about prevention. They have tons of websites out there with resources available. Um, there's a website called Health Hub, as an example. Um, you can subscribe to get tips and tricks on healthy recipes. Um, they have really good co-payment systems. Uh, if you want to ever go to Singapore to get specific uh, treatments, you can go to their website and you will see uh, the best hospitals to go to. Um, and again, if the government plays an active and, 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 and fair role in the process, the government can do so much. Mm-hmm. But you need to make sure that the incentives are aligned. Singapore is a perfect example of a long-term government. They don't have to uh, gain uh, public votes uh, every four years and so they can really plan in the long term that is not something easy to do in most other western countries political issues are the biggest issues to mm. get to a good value-based healthcare mm. but rest assured there are some solutions and at the european level and at the global level we have some things moving um, and so we have organizations like icham the world economic forum is really helping um, to make sure that we have transparency is really helping to make sure that people feel that peer pressure to improve uh, at the hospital level, uh, at the government level, and at an individual level. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to close with uh, a few thoughts as to how we as individuals can um, really take this to heart, this message to heart, and think about how we can take control of our own health. Please do. Yes. And what I mean by taking control is spend less money and be healthier, right? That is the essence of value-based healthcare. Mm-hmm. Feeling better, being less sick and spending less money. Along the journey, we stop at intriguing places and meet fascinating people with novel solutions to some of life's tricky questions. And we play a few games and track the remarkable characters of three classic books, A Soundbite Life, Flight of the Fused Monkeys, and Illicet, A Time to Begin Again, all of which can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. I am back with our guest. Gregory, I'm sure our audience is most eager for the specific steps each of us can take to stay healthy and achieve superior outcomes. So I shared my personal story um, that I went for an annual checkup a few days ago. And um, I fainted, right? And I said that one of the solutions was to eat less meat um, and go vegan. That's a very bold statement. Um, So let me take a step back and explain a bit uh, where all of this is coming from. So from everything I know about healthcare, an individual can do four things, potentially five, um, to really improve their health. 
One is the quality of sleep. Mm. Two is the type of food that they take. Three is exercise. Mm. Four mm. is meditate and manage stress. Mm. And five is and just take the right decisions in terms of where you go to, to do your checkups and, and in the hospitals and all of that. Mm. Right? It's the right decision making based on all the information out there. So in order to optimize all of that, you need to find a measuring system for yourself as an individual. And with tools like Fitbit or like Apple Watch, you can measure your, your sleep today. You also have apps to look at your food intake, uh, to understand you know, whether you have a healthy diet or not. Um, exercise, you're going to gain track with some, uh, a bunch of apps out there. Mm-hmm. And then um, I also recently started meditating. So I use Headspace as an app. And, and it really helps you uh, calm down at the beginning of a day or at the end of a day. Mm. And so the reason why I'm talking about this and why I'm passionate about this is because I have a high blood pressure for mm. my age. Um, and part of it is when I go to the doctor, I, I am stressed out because of a bad experience as a kid. Mm-hmm. So my blood pressure goes up. And, you know, the reason why I fainted is because of that, you know, that fact my blood pressure was high and I tensed. Um, and so when I walked out of the room after they drew blood, um, the pressure went kind of away and it, it created a toxic reaction in my body and I didn't have enough oxygen going to my brain. Mm. And that's why I fainted. Mm. Um, but it, it's a combination of stress. And, and once you are in a situation where somebody gives you bad news, it creates a, a snowball effect, mm-hmm. right? So you want to try to avoid getting there and you want to try to be as healthy as possible. Um, so it's all about preventive care. And so if you look at a number of studies and, and one um, really interesting Netflix video is, is called Forks Over Knives. Mm-hmm. And it basically looks at the effects of animal protein on your body. And it includes a few really, really interesting case studies. So I won't spoil it. I will let you uh, watch uh, Folks Over Knives uh, on Netflix. Um, But it basically explains why we should eat more um, plant-based proteins. And you will be able to function better with less sleep. Um, You will be able to avoid a bunch of cardiovascular diseases. Most of the cardiovascular diseases that we have are because of sugar and meat. Mm. Also meat, and, and the, the case studies show that, and people are hiding it, uh, but it's really important to know that. And mm. then meat or animal protein in general, right? So milk is also mm. not good for you, not good for others. I drink a lot of milk. Uh, it's bad. And, um, <laughs> and so same as eggs, right? That's also animal protein because it contains uh, things that are bad for your body mm. in simple terms. Um, so if you start eating healthier um, and, and really going back to the things that are available in nature mm-hmm. that are not processed, etc., plant-based, um, you will be able to function better with less sleep. Um, you will be able to have better performance uh, with uh, your exercises if you do the right things. You will see some of the athletes today mm-hmm. are vegan. Mm-hmm. It's a new trend coming up. Some of the best performing athletes in the world are, are moving towards vegan. I don't think that's a coincidence. And the last point, you know, that I mentioned is around meditation. So why would you meditate, right? Um, It really calms down your brain. And the first time might feel strange, 
might feel not you, right? But you have to get used to it. Do it a few times and you really feel your body in a much better way. I can now listen to my body. Sometimes I sit down and I, and I try to understand whether my body is tired or uh, whether I have a specific pain somewhere and I get to know my body much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know and are aware about your body and its environment, you can accept everything around you and you can let it go. You can focus on what you can control mm-hmm. and everything that you cannot control, you can let go. And it's such an important life lesson to be able to do that. Yep. Um, and it takes time. And if you, if you are optimizing for these four things, sleep, food, exercise, and, and stress management or meditation, you will live a healthier and hopefully also a happier life. You are on the journey and it's time for our question of the week. Our question of the week is, you guessed it, what are you doing to sustain a healthier, wealthier, happier life? What are you doing to sustain a healthier, wealthier, happier life? Well, Gregory, thank you so very, very much for sharing your in-depth study and your recommendations for a value-based healthcare system and what each of us can do to stay healthy without going poor. But before you go, we'd like you to play one of our special games. This one we call Three Hands and a Deep Hole. It comes from our Soundbite Life series, an audio dramatized series. And here it is. The sage says... Everyone living long enough will slip and fall into a deep hole. Three hands will appear. The hand of a hustler, the hand of a riddler, and the hand of a clown. Choose wisely, or you will be buried there. Which hand will you choose? My first reaction is to choose the clown. Mm. Because um, when you face adversity, mm. you need to keep a smile. You need to keep smiling. Mm. One of the things I learned, and, and I use it all the time, when I face tough circumstances, mm. I push through. But the only way that I can push through is through joking, through you know having fun as well. Mm. So if you can't have fun, you're not able to climb out of difficult situations. And so you need to be a smart clown. Yes, sure. And you need to be persistent. Mm -hmm. Yes, sure. But if you don't do it with a smile, if you don't believe in yourself, um, you won't get there. So that's why I decided for the clown. Lovely. The Journey is available free on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Rio Sports Radio, and several of your favorite internet platforms. Download, embed, and share via any of the social media you love. Just a reminder, four things we can do to upkeep our health. One, proper sleep. Two, nutritious food. Three, regular exercise. Four, stress management, for example, meditation. And five, healthy decision-making. See you next week.